0: A few years ago, I was speaking at a conference on science and spirituality with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and His Holiness said something. He said something I've been thinking about ever since. He said something that made me think about how I think about near-death experiences and about research into NDEs. What he said was that both Western science and Buddhism, when practiced correctly, are based not on revealed truths, but on observation and logical deduction. Neither science nor Buddhism values dogma over personal experience in the quest for truth. But he said the big difference between Buddhism and Western science is that scientists try to understand the world around us in order to change and control the world. And Buddhists, on the other hand, try to understand how the world works in order to live more harmoniously with nature and thereby reduce suffering of all sentient creatures. That conversation affected me deeply. It has made me question everything I do as a researcher, why I do it, what questions I ask, and what I do with the answers. It changed my reason for studying near-death experiences. It changed it from, what can NDEs teach us about how the mind and brain work, to, how can learning about NDEs help reduce suffering in the world. American culture now is rife with stories, sensational stories, about NDEs. All sorts of celebrities have had near-death experiences, from Tracy Morgan and Kanye West, to Bart Simpson and Opus the Penguin. (laughs) NDEs are treated by some people as comforting entertainment and they're dismissed by some scientists as meaningless tricks of the brain. So why would anyone in his right mind think that NDEs are worth taking seriously? I'm going to tell you why I think NDEs are worth taking seriously. Why they matter to me, why they matter to you, and why they matter to everyone. NDEs are important in part because they challenge us, not only our intellectual ideas about consciousness and the brain, but also our concept of who we are, how we fit into the universe, and how we should conduct our lives. The topic of this year's conference is the after-effects of near-death experiences. When we talk about NDE aftereffects we usually have in mind the effects on the experiencers themselves. But NDEs can also have profound effects on non-experiencers, on science, and on society as a whole. So first, let me quickly summarize what we know about the NDE after effects on the experiencers. I'd like to present some conclusions from the excellent chapter in the Handbook on Near-Death Experiences, chapters written by Rush Noyes, Peter Fennec, Jan Holden, and Roz Christian. First, there are changes in your perception of yourself. You have a loss of the fear of death, a strengthened belief in life after death, a renewed sense of purpose or mission, and a heightened sense of self-esteem, of being worth something. And all these points that I'm making here, that they made in their book, are supported by many, many studies. Of not only end ears, but talking to their significant others and repeated uh, interviews over years and years. Second, there are consistent changes in your relationship with other people, increased compassion and love, less concern for material gains, status, prestige, a greater desire to serve other people, and an increased ability to express your feelings, less inhibitions. Third, there are changes in your attitudes toward life, a greater appreciation of life and greater zest for life. There's an increased focus on the present rather than living in the past or in the future. There's a greater search for knowledge, a quest for learning. That goes on decades after the NDE. And there's a greater appreciation for nature and our role in the natural world. And then there are extraordinary phenomena that continue long after the NDE is gone. Recurring out-of-body experiences, apparitions or visions of the deceased, extrasensory perceptions, precognition or premonitions of future events, and healing abilities. And then there are changes in how your body works, altered physiology, Your senses are heightened and you have increased sensitivities to light, sound, odors, drugs. There are changes in the way your body functions, changes in your blood pressure, in your temperature tolerance, in your electromagnetic field. There are unusual movements and sensations that sometimes are compared to Kundalini arousals. There are changes in how you think, your thought processes, often becoming less linear and logical, and more creative and metaphoric. And there's increased energy and decreased need for sleep. In fact, these changes are so profound and so pervasive that family and friends sometimes feel the experiencer is no longer the person they knew. But as striking as many of these after-effects are, the most life-changing after-effects of many NDEs involve the experiencer's awareness of the spiritual aspect of their lives. And I want to spend some time focusing on these changes in spirituality because I think this area has been the most difficult for experiences to put into words and for researchers to study. One experiencer who left her body when it started convulsing with a very high fever due to severe kidney infection summarized this very nicely. She said, my body has since, my NDE has since affected my spirituality unbelievably. I am now deeply religious and spiritual, whereas before I only cared about having fun and acquiring material things. Now I don't give a hoot for material things. I know deep inside that this is not the life that counts, it's the eternal life. This is simply school for the soul. Heaven is my home, I'm just a visitor here. When I talk about spirituality, I'm not necessarily talking about religion. Spirituality refers to your personal experiences in trying to understand life's ultimate questions, feelings, thoughts, and experiences that relate to a search for the divine or the ultimate. A quest to connect with something greater than yourself, to discover the ultimate meaning and purpose of our existence. You can think of spirituality as an inner attitude. And religion as relating to outer institutions, beliefs, and rituals. In my research with people who have come close to death, those who had NDEs report far more spiritual growth than those who come close to death but don't have NDEs. The NDEs also reported a better relationship both with the divine and with the world around them. A greater sense of purpose than those who don't have NDEs. And after the brush with death, the NDEs reported more daily spiritual experiences, things like feeling divine love and guidance, feeling joy that lifts you out of your daily worries, feeling thankful for your blessings, and feeling a selfless caring for others, much more so than people who come close to death but don't have NDEs. None of the NDEs in my research described a decrease in spirituality, but almost all of them reported a marked increase. Near-death experiencers' beliefs prior to the NDE run the gamut from complete rejection of anything that smacks of the non-physical to pious devotion to a particular British cleave. But following the NDE, no matter what they thought before the experience, there was a dramatic shift in beliefs, attitudes, and values. Among the NDEers who participated in my research, more than 90% reported an increase in spirituality. The majority of the NDEers felt that there was no one right religion, but often felt at home in any place of worship. One NDEer who developed a serious lung infection after surgery said, quote, the enormity of this event had such an impact on my life, it opened windows and doors to me that I never knew existed. Thus, I was catapulted into studying and reading about all sorts of religions and mystical teachings. I was shown that religions are like jars of jelly on a shelf. Only each jar had a different label put there by men. It's all jelly. It's all sweet. But there are no religions in heaven. There are many paths up the mountain to reach God. And it doesn't matter which one you take, as long as you live by his principles. Because when you get there to that mountaintop, it's all the same. The same love, light, peace, harmony, gratitude, wisdom, and victory for everybody. The sooner we realize and do this on earth, the quicker we'll have our heaven right now. Everybody will get there in his or her right time. There is no death. The body leaves like taking off a coat. The mind, soul or spirit, emotions, all our senses go with us. There are no religions in heaven, just jelly. <laughs> More often than not, end ears in my research. So, that once they left their bodies and found themselves in a different realm of reality, the meaning of life became perfectly obvious to them. So, that they, as if they were remembering something that they had long ago forgotten, they didn't need the answers to be spelled out for them by the deity. Several ways near death experiences can manifest this deepened spirituality after an NDE. There are, They may find that their core values have changed. They may find themselves embarking on a long-term spiritual quest, seeking to improve their spiritual knowledge and deepen their spiritual life. They may feel a new or strengthened connection to the divine, however they define that. And they may continue to have additional spiritual experiences long after the NDE. A prominent part of many NDEs' exp- enhanced spirituality is this change in values. Connecting with something greater than yourself enlarges your vision of who you are and gives you a sense of belonging that's the heart of spirituality. Several studies have shown that NDEers tend to see themselves as integral parts of a caring and purposeful universe. Among the NDEs in my research, almost 90% described a newfound sense of inner meaning in their lives. One experiencer who had an NDE during emergency abdominal surgery said, quote, all of this had and still has a profound effect on my life that I've, that I've not been the same. Yet I'm still me, perhaps a freer person than I was before, but still me, freer in the sense of being or becoming the me that God created me to be. All my values have changed and are still changing, becoming clearer, though not all at once. There's often a hunger for a deeper involvement with my fellow man, and I'm always seeking a closer touch with God. Along with this is the daily routine of living, of doing what you must, trying to improve whatever you can, wherever you can and to spread the message of love in all the small ways that we do, all the while being fortified by the real presence of God in my life. There's a certain joy and awe in relating my experience, but the moment comes when the experience ceases to be the focal point. You have to really look upon it as only a beginning, a new birth, if you will. And from that point on, you begin to grow. The growth is a new reality. It points you to becoming involved with others. The self begins to dwindle away, and though you may try to hang on to the near and dear of self, you really have to let it go. For if you don't, you'll be negating the purpose that you have. This growth is for your good and ultimate happiness. Over and above the talking about the experience, the sharing, has to then come the action. Not that you have to stop talking and sharing, but now included in that is the action, the action of doing what we were sent back for. It may have been presented to each of us in different ways, but the same message comes out loud and clear. We all know what it is, and though it can be said in a thousand ways, there's one word that says it all, love. And the meaning of the message is this. Quote, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. That is the irrevocable truth. Another important part of their spirituality for many end ears is this passionate quest for further spiritual growth. Among the end ears in my research, more than 90% described a search for personal meaning that strengthened in their lives. What's the meaning of life? Have you tried Googling it? <laughs> One nde whose fallopian tube ruptured during an ectopic pregnancy said, I had stopped formal education after high school and was not interested in religion, philosophical or scientific matters. However, after my NDE, I embarked on a lifelong quest for knowledge in just those areas. And remember, this was years before the printed experiences of others could have influenced my behavior. An almost insatiable thirst for knowledge in the subjects of science, philosophy, theology, and what is called metaphysics has dominated my life since the NDE. I feel the most important things are seeking and sharing knowledge and receiving and returning love. I feel strongly that it is the spiritual that is important and that the dogma and doctrine of organized religion are man-made, and for that reason, subject to flaw, and as history is shown, not too effective. The religious person is said to follow church teachings, and the spiritual person follows the guidance of his inner spirit. The thirst for knowledge is a daily drive with hours spent researching a myriad of subjects. Learning and knowledge are things you can take with you as you pass through. The secrets in the seeking and the pursuit goes on eternally. That each is responsible for one's own actions and beliefs and progress towards spiritual enlightenment is my life's recipe. Whether they think about their spiritual beliefs in terms of a particular religious faith, or in terms of non-specific sense of connection with the universe, most NDEers describe being aware of a continued presence in their lives of something sacred or divine, defined broadly as anything greater than the self that's worthy of reverence or veneration. Among the NDEers in my research, more than 80% described having a stronger belief in a higher power and an inner sense of the divine presence. One experiencer who had an NDE when her surgical wound became badly infected said, that experience changed my life. It made me more aware that there is a God. And also, since I was delivered, life has a special meaning now. I no longer take things for granted. God has become my best friend. I depend on him, and I seek his advice on everything. I pray constantly and thank God for his goodness to me. Each hour, minute, second is solely valuable now, and I try my best to help people. I know I was raised from the dead, and for this I am forever grateful. For some years, this connection, not only with the divine, but with the greater spiritual world, does not end with the NDE, but continues with ongoing or repeated mystical experiences. Among the NDEers in my research, more than 60% described a stronger sense of the sacred aspect of life, and more than 80% reported repeated mystical experiences since their NDE. Here's how it was described by one NDEer who was poisoned by a thief while traveling on vacation, and his connection with the spiritual may be perhaps more strengthened than for many NDEers. He said... The most astonishing thing about my NDE is that it is still here with me. My whole consciousness, myself and everything else, has changed. I feel as if the back of my head has been sawn off, so that it is no longer the 60-year-old I who looks out on the world, but the shining, dark, infinite void, which in some extraordinary way is also I. My eyes and my other senses receive a whole world that seems to be coming into existence. Fresh minted, moment by moment, I'm constantly up against this paradox when I try to describe the experience. On one hand, I feel infinitely far back in sensing the world. Yet at the same time, I feel the very opposite, as if my consciousness is no longer inside my head at all, but out there in the things I'm experiencing. I often sense that when I perceive, say, a tree, that I am that tree perceiving itself. I hasten to add that my consciousness is like this, on average, only about 50% of the time. The proportion varies from week to week. I constantly drift back into my old way of experiencing myself and the world. I can and constantly do forget that the shining darkness is there. Then suddenly it all comes flooding back. I know that it is we who turn away from God, not God from us. I still get annoyed when people try to push me around. And I still keep aspirin in the house in case I get a pain that I can't enjoy. Yet my NDE does seem to have plunged me into an adventure of consciousness, wherein I have no idea what the next surprise will be. I often feel as if I've been born again into a new life. I'm like an infant, still learning my way around. My old life is a distant memory, not actually forgotten or blurred, but somehow cut off, so that recalling it requires some effort, like remembering the lines of a play once known by heart, but not performed for years. These spiritual after-effects of NDEs are important features. And some may argue that they're the paramount or the crowning effects of the NDEs. But I'm a scientist and a researcher. I'm not a theologian or a spiritual teacher. So what do scientists like me know about all the spiritual stuff? For the past hundred years, there's been a sharp line drawn between spirituality and science. And neither scientists nor theologians have dared tread on the domain of the other. But in reality, it's an artificial line between the two that has produced a lot of this confusion that we have about the mind and the brain. And this line also contributes to the apparent conflict that some scientists and theologians see between the physical and spiritual explanations. In fact, there's every reason to expect that physiological events can lead to spiritual experiences and that spiritual experiences can lead to physiological events. It's as if the physical and the spiritual are two sides of the same coin. As long as we're living in the physical world, I would expect everything we do to have both a physical aspect and a spiritual aspect, though we may choose to look at one or the other. But as Stefan Schwartz mentioned yesterday, 400 years ago, the academy and the church entered into this unholy agreement that scientists would not poke their nose into the spirit, and theologians would leave alone the body so that neither group, would have anything to do with the other. This is a scientist saying, I ask you, next to miss science and religion. Oops, there we go. Who knows what will (laughs) happen? But in real life, there is no sharp distinction between the two, between the scientific and the physical and the spiritual. Albert Einstein, the most innovative thinker in science of the past century, recognized their commonality. He wrote, science and religion go together. Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. They are interdependent and have a common goal, the search for truth. In truth, a legitimate conflict between religion and science cannot exist. Astronomer Carl Sagan, the patron saint of the modern skeptical movement, agreed. He said, science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. Oops, we keep skipping up here. The notion that science and spirituality are somehow mutually exclusive does a disservice to both. The point of this is that including both physical science and spirituality in our models of the world gives us a more useful picture of reality, than using either one alone. The view that everything in the universe is made entirely of physical matter and energy, and that everything else is an illusion, gives us a model that doesn't work all the time. But likewise, the view that the only thing that's real is consciousness, and that everything else is an illusion, also gives us a different kind of reality, that doesn't work all the time. It may help to think of these models of how the world works as tools for dealing with the world, and we may need different tools for different tasks. For example, a hammer is an excellent tool for driving a nail into a piece of wood, but is not the best tool for threading a nut onto a bolt. The idea that everything composed of physical matter and energy is a useful tool for fixing a car, but not the best tool for understanding our thoughts and feelings. So let me turn now to why near-death experiences are important to science. What are the after effects of NDEs for scientists? Anyone who contemplates the nature of NDEs and what they imply about the relationship between our minds and our brains has to come to terms with some very serious limitations of the conventional materialist ideas. As Alvin Noe summed up what mainstream scientists have learned about our minds and brains, he said, after decades of concerted effort on the part of neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers, only one proposition about how the brain reaches conscious, how it gives rise to sensation, feeling, and subjectivity has emerged unchallenged. We don't have a clue. Right now, you're listening to me talk. At least some of you are. (laughs) And you're thinking about what you're hearing. And maybe you're also feeling an itch on the bottom of your left foot. Those thoughts and feelings are examples of what we mean by consciousness being aware of yourself and the world around you. Your own consciousness is both the most complex puzzle for humans, and also the simple, most obvious fact for all of us. Nothing is more obvious and undeniable than the fact that you are conscious. Your mind, that's a uh, photograph of a mind. (laughs) Your mind is that part of you that experiences consciousness, your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, your memories, your hopes, and so on. Your brain is that mass of pink-gray matter inside your skull made up of nerve cells, or neurons, and supporting cells, or glia. It seems plausible to me that the mind and the brain usually go together, usually work in tandem. Or maybe that they're just different ways of talking about the same process, that mind and brain are different ways of looking at the same thing. Many academic scientists assume that the workings of the mind can be be explained by the physical brain. Their mantra is, the mind is what the brain does. Kind of like digestion is what the stomach does. Our consciousness, our perception, our thinking, our feeling, our emotions, our intentions are produced in this model by electrical and chemical changes in the brain in some mysterious way that no one knows. It's true that electrical activity in the brain is usually associated with mental activity, thinking, remembering, dreaming. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the electrical brain activity causes the thoughts and feelings. Maybe the thoughts cause the electrical activity in the brain. For example, as you're listening to my voice, there's electrical activity in the auditory cortex, the temporal lobe of your brain. But that doesn't mean that the electrical activity in your brain is producing my voice maybe you're hearing my voice produces electrical activity in your brain so saying that the, mi- the mind is what the brain does is like saying making music is what a musical instrument does musical instruments do produce musical sounds but not by themselves they're tools that people use to make music or generate sounds the idea that your brain can produce your thoughts and feelings, makes as much sense as the idea of a musical instrument producing music all by itself. The association between brain and mind is a fact. We can observe that. But the belief that the brain creates the mind is a theory that was proposed to explain this observed observation. And for everyday life, it's a workable model. But the association between mind and brain breaks down under exceptional circumstances. And this leads us to the first major after effect of NDEs on science. When the heart stops, breathing also stops. And blood carrying oxygen and fuel no longer flow to the brain. Within 10 to 20 seconds, there's no detectable chemical chemical activity Or electrical activity in the brain. People who survive such a crisis generally don't have clear thoughts and perceptions during the period when their heart stops. And after they revived, they have no memories of the time that they were unconscious. And yet 10 to 20 percent of such people remember vivid and detailed NDEs that occurred while their hearts were stopped. If the mind were in fact produced by the electrical and chemical changes in the brain, then near-death experiences that happen when the brain is not functioning clearly are impossible. But NDEs are possible. In fact, they're expected if the brain doesn't produce our thoughts and feelings and memories, but rather receives them from your mind and then selects those thoughts and feelings that are important for your survival and converts them into electrical and chemical signals that your body can understand our bodies evolved over time in order to survive in the physical world and our brains evolved over time in order to process information that would help our bodies survive information like where food can be found approaching dangers, where you can find shelter. But think of all the things that go through an endy ear's mind during the experience, meeting divine beings and deceased loved ones, visiting otherworldly places. Those thoughts and feelings do not help us survive in the physical world and, in fact, may get in the way of our ability to process information about the world quickly. So under normal circumstances, it makes sense that the brain may work like a filter to block out any information that the body doesn't need for survival. Things like information about the spiritual world. doesn't help you find food or shelter or escape dangers. So the brain, acting as a filter, selects from those thoughts and memories stored in the mind only that information the body needs right now to survive. It's very much like the way a radio receiver will sort through the variety of stations that are being broadcast and select only the one signal you want to listen to and filters out all the others. If it didn't do that, your ears would be overwhelmed by trying to listen to hundreds of stations at the same time and you wouldn't hear them completely. Psychologist William James, psychologist William James, more than a hundred years ago, compare the brain to a prism. White light flows through one side of the prism, and the prism breaks up these signals into all the colors of the rainbow. In this analogy, the contents of the mind are broken up into thoughts and feelings by the brain that we become aware of. So the brain, working as a prism, takes the raw thoughts from the mind and filters out the ones we don't need, and just lets through the ones that are relevant to us. We need the brain to focus our thoughts in order to function in the physical world. In the prism analogy, as long as the prism remains intact and unbroken, it filters white light just as it's supposed to. And a healthy brain that's not broken filters the contents of the mind. Letting through only those thoughts and perceptions that are relevant to the body's immediate survival. The light isn't produced by the prism. It's just filtered by it. Just as the mind is not produced by the brain, but filtered by it. If you chip the prism, it no longer breaks up the light the way it's supposed to. The light doesn't stop shining just because the prism is chipped. The light is still there, but the damaged prism no longer breaks it up into different colors that we can see. In the same way, when your brain is damaged, your thoughts aren't as clear as they are with an attacked brain. But your thoughts, your consciousness, does not stop just because the brain is damaged. It's just no longer filtered effectively by the brain. But if the brain is a filter, Allowing in only those experiences relevant to survival in the physical world, then when the brain shuts down, that filtering mechanism gets deactivated. What happens then? The damaged brain then lets in experiences beyond the body in space and time. In other words, the filter model predicts that we're more likely to have expansive spiritual experiences when the brain shuts down. And in fact, that's just what we see. When you come close to death and your brain filter stops working efficiently, then we can experience the full range of consciousness, including leaving the body, receiving non-physical beings, and so forth. As Larry Dossi put it, we're conscious not because of the brain, but in spite of it. So the most reasonable neuroscientific explanation of NDEs, the one that accounts for best for all the data, is that NDEs are not a product of brain activity at all. They result instead from the removal, removal of the brain's filtering activity. Maybe for the first time in a person's life at the moment of death, the selecting and filtering effect of the brain is eliminated and the individual is free to experience the greater reality that involves more than just our physical environment. And in fact, some NDEers spontaneously used the filter metaphor to describe feeling freed from their brains during an NDE. One experiencer reported a shift in his consciousness when he drowned at age eight. He said, quote, My mind expanded to that of an adult capacity, and then beyond. I suppose without the limitation of a child's brain, it allowed my true nature to express itself again. It made me think that our understanding of the brain is actually backwards. The brain filters out everything and doesn't help our thinking but hinders it, slows it down, focuses it. Maybe because it's so good at filtering and focusing, we don't remember our prior existence or future events either. another endear reported a similar sense of freedom from her brain when she smashed her head on a diving board she said after my head hit the diving board i was in the water my thinking was all over the map it was like a pinball machine on tilt and yet there was still some part of me that felt free from ordinary waking thinking sensations i felt free from my brain And that thinking I had was free, simple, and clear. It was remarkable to be going through a brain over-firing or randomly firing or down or whatever, and still be able to have free, clear thoughts. Just suddenly feel this as if I was no longer being constrained or restricted to this world and its limits. So one after effect of NDEs for scientists, as well as for experiencers, is to challenge the idea that the mind is merely what the brain does, and to suggest that the mind exists independent of the brain, the brain's function being to limit or filter the perception and awareness of the transcendent world so we can function more efficiently in the physical world. A second major after-effect for scientists, as well as for experiencers, is to challenge the idea that death is the end of consciousness. The question of whether or not we continue to exist after death has been a prominent role of almost every religion in almost every society. And inventive people have thought of different ways to try to answer the question of whether we can survive death. (laughs) The sign says, is there life after death? Jump this fence and find out. If the brain merely filters and processes the products of our mind and our awareness expands when the brain shuts down, then consciousness may well be able to continue after death. And ease may offer some evidence that consciousness doesn't end when the body dies. We have the enhanced mental function that we've already talked about when the brain is impaired. There's also accurate perceptions from the out-of-body location and this information from deceased persons in the NDE that nobody alive should have known. And they're meeting people in your NDE who are dead, but who are not known at the time to be dead. Among the Ndeers who participated in my research, half described their thinking during the NDE as clearer than usual, and almost as many described it as faster than usual. This suggests that the mind can function when the brain is offline, which is a prerequisite for consciousness continuing after the brain dies. And among the hundreds of NDEs who participated in my research, more than 80% reported seeing their surroundings from a visual perspective outside their physical bodies. Are these nothing more than fantasies, or can these people really see their bodies from a distance? Jan Holden reviewed 89 cases of NDEs the reports of -of out-of-body perception of the physical environment. She found that 82 of these 89 were completely accurate. That is, they were corroborated by doctors or other independent witnesses of the scene. 82 of 89 were completely accurate. Six included some minor errors. Now, only one was flat-out wrong. Again, these cases suggest that our mind can function outside the physical body which, again, is a prerequisite for the mind functioning after the body dies. One endier described his out-of-body perceptions during an emergency cardiac bypass operation. He said, quote, To my amazement, at the lower left-hand side was, of all things, me. I was lying on a table with light blue sheets, and I was cut open to expose my chest cavity. It was in this cavity that I was able to see my heart. I was able to see my surgeon, who just moments ago had explained to me what he was going to do during my operation. He appeared to be somewhat perplexed. I thought he was flapping his arms as if he was trying to fly. It was then that I turned my attention to the lower right-hand side of the place I was at. There, preceded by warmth, joy, and peace, and the feeling of being loved, a brown cloaked figure drifted out of the light toward me. As my euphoria rose still more, I much to my delight recognized it to be that of my mother. My mother had died at age 37 when I was seven years old. I'm now in my 50s and the first thought that came to my mind was how young my mother appeared. All at once, my mother's expression changed to that of concern. At this point, she left my side and drifted down toward my surgeon. She placed the surgeon's hand on the left side of my heart and then returned to me. The surgeon made a sweeping motion, as if trying to rid the area of a flying insect. I later had the chance to speak to this patient's surgeon. And I asked him about this flapping his wings. And he confirmed that he had developed this regular habit of flapping his elbows because after he scrubs in and his hands are covered with sterile gloves and his assistants are cutting open the body and preparing things, he doesn't want to risk touching anything that's non-sterile. So he puts his hands where he knows they won't touch anything non-sterile on his gown. And then he supervises and says, you know, cut over there a little, you know, pull back over there. In my half-century as a doctor, I've never seen this. I've never heard of any other surgeon doing this. It's not the type of behavior that a patient would imagine from watching medical shows on TVs. (laughs) In order to pinpoint the time during the procedure when this patient saw the surgeon flapping his arms, I asked him what else he saw at the same time. He reported that he saw his chest being held open by metal clamps, and two other surgeons were working on his legs, which puzzled him because the problem was with his heart. In fact, those surgeons were at the time stripping a vein out of his leg in order to create a bypass graft for his heart. So that detail clearly establishes that the patient saw the cardiac surgeon flapping his arms when he was fully anesthetized, and so far as anyone could tell, completely unconscious. In some NDEs, the experiences meet people who have been dead, sometimes for a long time. Among the NDEs who participated in my research, about one quarter report meeting deceased loved ones. Now these visions have sometimes been dismissed as expectation or wishful thinking. But that doesn't explain the NDEs where the deceased person communicates information that no one still living knew. And even more challenging are those cases in which the end ear meets a deceased person who was not yet known to be dead. One end ear was hospitalized as a nine-year-old boy in a coma with severe pneumonia. His fever finally broke after 36 hours of anxious vigil at his bedside by his parents. As soon as he opened his eyes at three o'clock in the morning, the boy excitedly told his parents that he had just been to heaven. We saw his grandpa, his aunt, his uncle, all deceased. Then he added that he also saw his 19-year-old sister, Teresa in heaven. And she told him he had to go back. Now, Teresa was attending college in Vermont and was perfectly healthy as far as anyone knew. But what the family found out, as soon as they tried to telephone her, was that Teresa had been killed in an automobile accident just after midnight. And the college officials had been trying unsuccessfully to reach them on their home phone. So how could this nine-year-old boy have known that his sister had died before anyone else in the family knew? Another end of year, had a similar experience when he was hospitalized with pneumonia at age 26. He said, I've been taken very ill and was three to four weeks in an oxygen tent. This was quite a while ago. And status epilepticus, then double pneumonia, and so on and so on. One of my nurses was a young woman from the far lands of the Western Cape. She told me it was her 21st birthday that weekend and that her parents were coming in from the country to celebrate. She flopped up my pillows as she always did. I held her hand to wish her happy birthday, and then she left. In my NDE, I saw Nurse Anita on the other side. What are you doing here, I asked. Why, I've come to flop up your pillows. I want to tell you that you must return, you must go back, tell my parents I'm sorry, I wrecked the red MGB. Tell them I love them. And then she was gone. When I recovered, I told another nurse what Anita had said to me. This girl burst into tears and fled the ward. I later learned that Anita and this nurse had been great friends. Anita had been surprised by her parents who presented her with a red MGB sports car for her birthday. Anita had jumped into the car in inner excitement, raced down the highway, and on a winding mountain road, crashed into a telephone pole, dying immediately. How could he have known that nurse Anita had died? Amicia crashed her red MGB that she'd just been given for her birthday unless she was still conscious after her death and able to talk to him. All of these accounts, and there are many, many more dating back to the ancient Greeks, are they nothing more than fantasies? How do we explain meeting deceased people who are not yet known to be dead, unless these deceased people can still communicate with us in some way? This, as you might expect, poses problems for some people in the scientific establishment. My colleagues and I submitted to a medical journal a manuscript about whether any NDEs could provide evidence bearing on the question of possible survival after death. The editor told us that the paper had some merit, but that we couldn't use the phrase survival after death in a medical journal. So we changed it to whether NDEs could provide evidence for persistent consciousness after bodily death. (laughs) That was still not acceptable. (laughs) Even though the editor thought the content was worth publishing, in frustration we asked him what we could call the possibility of life after death. And he replied with equal frustration, You can call it chopped liver, for all I care. (laughs) We eventually did publish that manuscript in a different medical journal with the word survival in it. But we continue to talk to ourselves in terms of the question of whether NDEs can provide evidence of chopped liver. (laughs) Wishful thinking can certainly make people see evidence for survival. When there is none there. But wishful thinking can also make other people unable to see evidence for survival when it is there. Our desire to believe something is not evidence for that thing, but neither is it evidence against it. So, what's the bottom line? I think the most logical conclusion is that death is not the end of our consciousness, but just a change of state. What does all this mean to humankind as a whole, including those who aren't experiencers and are not scientists? Why are NDEs important to everyone else? If you know the lessons of NDEs, if you understand that we're all interdependent, that whatever you do to someone else, you end up doing to yourself as well, shouldn't that have profound effects on how you lead your life? This is essentially the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Every major religion has some variant of this as one of its basic guidelines. It appears in an ancient Egyptian papyrus from 500 B.C. In the writings of the Greek philosophers Sextus and Isocrates. In the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. In the books of Matthew and Galatians in the New Testament in the Babylonian Talmud, in the Muslim Quran, in the Hindu Mahabharata, in the writings of Padma Purana, in the Buddhist Udnana Varga, in the Jain Sutra Kruchanga, in the Analects of Confucius, in the Taoist Taishan Khan Pin, and on and on. It's hard to find a religion that doesn't have the golden rule as one of its basics. Religions that promote a belief in God describe the golden rule as a divine precept, whereas religions that do not believe in a God promote it as a reasonable guide to leading a fulfilled life. Writer Dinty Moore, a Christian-turned-Buddhist, put it this way. He said, if there is a God, I should live my life according to the principles of kindness, compassion, and awareness. And if there is no God... I should live my life according to the principles of kindness, compassion, and awareness anyway, how wonderfully simple. (laughs) We all know the golden rule, but do we live it? As educator Frank Crane wrote, the golden rule is of no use to you whatever, unless you realize it's your move. The lesson of the NDE is that the golden rule is not just a commandment we should obey but rather an indisputable law of nature as inevitable as gravity. As epin Alexander put it yesterday, the golden rule is woven into the fabric of the universe. Near-death experiences know firsthand it's the way the universe works because they've experienced it firsthand in feeling in their life reviews the effects of their actions on others. Though they don't feel punished or judged by their misdeeds, they do receive, as part of their life review, everything they've given out, measure for measure. Tom Sawyer, who used to be a fixture of these experiences before he passed on, had an ND when the truck he was working on collapsed down on his chest and crushed him. He found that in his life review, he experienced all his misdeeds from the perspective of his victims. He recalled beating up someone with his fists when he was 19 years old. He said, I also experienced seeing Tom's fists come directly into my face. And I felt the indignation, the rage, the embarrassment, the frustration, the physical pain. I felt my teeth going through my lower lip. In other words, I was in that man's body. I experienced everything of that interrelationship between myself and that man that day. You better believe that I was in that man's body, seeing through that man's eyes. And for the first time, I saw what an enraged Tom not only looked like, but felt like. I experienced the physical pain, the degradation, the embarrassment, the humiliation, and the helplessness in being knocked back like that. I want to end this with a quote from another experiencer. This was a firefighter who was called out in the dead of winter to fight a fire at temperatures 20 degrees below zero. And during the fight, the firefight, his heart stopped. And he had a very profound NDE. And this is what he learned from it. He said, I'm impatient with peoples of religion who are killing each other because of some accidental difference in their observance, such as Shiite Muslims and Sunni Muslims or Irish Catholics and Protestants. There's no essential difference in the ultimate truths upon which religions are based. I cannot understand why governments and people murder What bothers me terribly are the recent pictures of death in the media. I see people being blown up. I see corpses being loaded into trucks with payloaders and forklifts. I see the populations of the planet destroying their home. I cry with the earth when I witness the demise of the rainforests. I cry when I see the denuding of hillsides. Since my heart attack, I realize that we are a tiny part of an immense system where galaxies interact. Earth life could be ended by collision with one single asteroid. And yet we Earthlings carry on as as if we were the only beings in existence. I've studied biology and marvel at the composition of life. I've studied physics and find that our existence is much more complicated than we could ever have imagined. I've read history and discover that the bulk of our heritage revolves around violence, warfare, destruction, and hate. I do not understand. Perhaps this current life is the traditional hell. I believe that there is life beyond, that there is another level of existence, that there will always be another beyond. It is the infinity of beyonds that is God. I believe that the function of a soul is to learn and that each subsequent existence is geared toward a point of perfection. After which we become become one with a prime mover, we become God. The part that is most difficult in this state of existence seems to be that people are always getting in their own way. We are our own worst enemy. We want to help but we don't help. We want to be helped, but we don't accept help. And when we try to help, acceptance on the part of the other is not in place. On cosmic television, we must appear like five-year-olds trying to play a game of tennis. Yet occasionally, I meet a person who shares a wide view with me for maybe a minute or two because it is too much demanding, much too demanding to open one's soul any longer than that. The dose of reality is too big. So what we need to do, experiences and non experiences like alike, is to open our filters a little bit and let more reality in. Thank you.